and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 19th November with me, Ian Welsh. A few days ago, I spoke with Nigel Sizer, Executive Director of the Preventing Pandemics at the Source Coalition and former President of the Rainforest Alliance. We talked about the work of the Coalition and why the relationships between climate action and pandemic prevention were not given a higher profile at COP26 in Glasgow. Some of the Innovation Forum team have been at Textile Exchange's Textile Sustainability Conference 2021 in Dublin, Ireland. And coming up is a summary of a session led by Innovation Forum's Toby Webb and featuring Tina Owens from Danone, Dave Fitzgerald from Kellogg and forest expert Simon Lord. Also to come is an update from Innovation Forum's Narni Brookadil on the Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conference coming up at the end of November. First up, though, is a quick roundup of some sustainable business news. Post-COP and COP-related discussion continues, albeit less dominating the mainstream media, which seemed to really get excited about the meetings in Glasgow. Certainly that was the case here in the UK. The EU has released its plans to introduce due diligence measures to ensure that products sold in the EU markets are free from links to deforestation or forest degradation for six forest commodities. Officials have recognised that demand in the EU for them, palm oil, soy, cocoa, coffee, beef and timber, is a strong driver of deforestation. Some estimates have the bloc responsible for 16% of deforestation as recently as 2017. The legislation will require companies to prove that products have not contributed to forest destruction. Breaching the rules will mean products can be suspended and companies facing fines and confiscations of revenue. A new initiative has been launched to help companies plot their route to eliminating the tricky Scope 3 indirect and supply chain emissions. The Value Chain Initiative, led by Gold Standard and Sustain Cert, is a collaborative forum for sharing best practices and advice from the likes of Science Based Targets Initiative and the World Resources Institute. Corporates signed up include Cargill, Mars, McDonald's, Nike, PepsiCo, and many more. In the US, President Biden has now signed into law the $1 trillion Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act which provides for large sums of cash to drive energy transition, development of clean hydrogen, the electrification of vehicle fleets, and the development of carbon capture technologies. While this is undoubtedly good news, the US still lags many other developed economies on many of these issues. On an electric vehicles, for example, the aim is for zero emission vehicles to make up half of all new vehicle sales in the US by 2030, rather than eliminating new internal combustion engines entirely. Rapidly approaching is Innovation Forum's biggest event of the year, our Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conference from the 30th of November to the 2nd of December. It's going to be an exciting few days. To catch up on all the event news, earlier this week I spoke with Innovation Forum's Narni Brook Adil. Welcome back to the podcast, Narni. Thanks, Ian. How are you doing? I'm very well and very excited about Innovation Forum's upcoming Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Forum coming up in a couple of weeks' time. So, Narni, we're just two weeks out from the big conference, so what are you looking forward to most? I know, time is really flying now. Honestly, I can't single out favourite sessions at this point. The agenda is just so packed with so many amazing speakers and I'm so grateful for them all joining us. I'm most looking forward to, really, I just have this feeling that the conversations we have this year are going to be even more practical and nitty gritty, as we say, than usual because of the urgency that I think everyone feels now following on from COP. We always try and have our conversations like that, but this year I feel like it'll be even more so. So to be honest, I'm looking forward to just getting stuck in, learning loads and watching the partnerships that form as a result of these meetings. As you see, recent news has been dominated by the COP26 meetings. 
Are there any specific outcomes from Glasgow you think will be reflected in the forum, in the conversations? Yeah, a couple. But I also think it's going to be a running theme over the three days where we'll constantly be linking back to COP. As I just mentioned, the feel of urgency is obvious at the moment. So every session from our procurement plenary on SGD targets and scope three objectives, all through to sort of our forest restoration and land use sessions, they can all be tied back to the outcomes of COP and how companies can achieve these targets quicker if we're going to keep that 1.5 degree goal alive, I guess. And obviously, this conference is a lot more focused around our deforestation. So there's been a lot of talks come out of COP around the finance needed to tackle that. So yeah, fortunate to have this conference at such a relevant time because we're reflecting a lot of the key topics. Yes, I agree. There's two things for me, I think, that stand out. As you say, it's the funding around deforestation that was agreed right at the start of the COP meetings in Glasgow. And also the overall sense of urgency and momentum. That's something that I'm hoping we'll see reflected in the conversations at the Landscapes Forum as well. I suspect there'll also be a sense of frustration that while the ultimate agreement from Glasgow, the Glasgow Climate Pact, isn't perhaps as strong as we'd have all hoped, or many of us would have hoped, is just enough to keep momentum going for the potential of 1.5 Celsius of warming to be maintained. We shall see. Any last minute additions to the agenda or speaker lineup, Nani? I think we've had a couple since we last spoke. We have Porsche joining us for a session around cross-industry collaboration, which I'm really looking forward to. And also a last minute speaker from McDonald's who will be joining our plenary on KPIs and defining measurable outcomes. So now we really are full. (laughs) No more speakers, I'm afraid. (laughs) It certainly are. A lot of speakers and a lot of expert panellists will be joining us. How can attendees start engaging with other delegates and the conference platform as we're approaching the conference now? So on Friday, we're aiming to send all our registered delegates their personal login links to the platform. So once you're in, you obviously set up your profile. You can then private message and set up private meetings with anyone else on the platform, as well as going through your agenda. There's a function that's build your personal agenda. Any sessions you can make live, hopefully all of them, they'll be imported into your calendars. Get that all set up and start networking as soon as possible. So that's Friday the 19th of November that all delegates will get access to the platform. And listeners, a special exclusive opportunity for any podcast listeners who have yet to sign up for the event. The exclusive 10% discount on the remaining tickets is available for you. Just input the code POD10, P-O-D-10, when you sign up for access via the Innovation Forum website. Okay, well, Narni, look forward to the event in a couple of weeks' time and uh, see you then. Thanks, Ian. While I was in Dublin at the Textile Sustainability Conference 2021, Innovation Forum's Toby Webb led a session focusing on what the apparel industry can learn from the food sector, with Tina Owens, Senior Director of Food and Agriculture Impact at Danone, North America, Dave Fitzgerald, Head of Responsible Sourcing at Kellogg, and Forest and Agriculture Expert Simon Lord. Following the session, Toby recorded a summary of the discussion. So we started out with Dave talking about using both regulatory drivers and the commercial aspect of transparency, consumer interest, to really drive progress in the business. We're seeing that in the apparel and textile sector all the time now. We talked about biodiversity being the next big issue. There are some big announcements to come out of the sort of policy dialogue forums related to the Kunming negotiations. I believe early next year that's going to be a huge issue. 
how do we have a biodiversity strategy or policy in the apparel and textile sector? Not easy, but those of you who wish to be progressive will want to try and figure that out. We talked about regenerative as a business strategy, but also making sure that it's holistic, that it's built on work that's been done. It's not just transplanted in and and features areas such as circularity whilst admitting that we don't yet understand all the complexity, but thinking about regenerative in, in a holistic sense rather than simply in an ecosystem sense, which is just part of it. We heard about consumer sentiment being the biggest issue around at the moment in terms of driving change in the food sector. And of course, we see that in the apparel and textile sector as well. We talked about supplier incentives, farmer incentives. How do we incentivize the right behavior moving beyond the stick and cut and run approach? Importantly, we talked about innovation as part of the business transformation process. Now that's a line you can sell to anyone who runs a company. Everyone loves the term innovation. That's why we're called Innovation Forum. Who doesn't like innovation? So using innovation as part of the business transformation process, as I believe Tina pointed out, absolutely vital helping small business people become better business people. Number seven was Dave's comment around tech being absolutely key for silo breaking, shared data, data platforms, blockchain, using a consortium approaches as well so that, that data is aggregated and understood commonly. Number eight was around extended producer responsibility, those schemes of you put it on the market, you own it, driving serious change and creating drivers for action as EPR schemes spread across Europe and the world. We noted, well, I noted that um, the idea of just being recyclable in your materials is nowhere near enough now. You need to get on with supporting the infrastructure side. We talked about being proactive as a solution to correct or to tackle misinformation, not necessarily just responding to stuff in a defensive way, but going out there and owning the issue beforehand. Simon's point uh, was at my number 10 about having a chief sustainability officer, someone who can step back, look across the horizon and manage risk proactively being very important. And the last two points, uh, again from Simon, don't mix communications and disclosure. Different things, both valuable tools in your toolbox, the example of Nestle being a very good one. You can create great communications or better communications by having smart disclosure. And finally, I think we all agree with Simon's final point, strategic partnerships are key Make sure they're aligned with your own growth so you can get that strategic support in the business. A few days ago, following his return from COP26, I spoke with Nigel Sizer, Executive Director of the Preventing Pandemics at the Source Coalition, about the relationships between deforestation, climate change and pandemic prevention. You spent some time at COP26 in Glasgow. So what were your main impressions of the COP26 meetings? Well, I was impressed by the level of organization. It was an extraordinary experience. I'm very glad that I went. I was there for 10 days altogether. I was, of course, very excited at the beginning with the announcement on forests, which was a very big deal, is a very big deal. Apparently $19 billion in, let's say, mostly new money if not all new money, has been committed by governments. And a lot of that to be spent by 2025, actually, some through 2030. That's a lot of money to spend over the next three or four years. And some really good things can happen with that. So for me, as someone who's worked most nearly all their career, trying to get billions of dollars for tropical forests, especially, that was a surprise and very exciting. And a lot of credit to the hard work of some British civil servants who who I spoke to personally, and I know worked very, very hard to make that happen behind the scenes. 
You're working with the Preventing Pandemics at Source Coalition, Executive Director. Can you just outline for us the work of the coalition? We're a group of organisations, mostly global organisations, including some large environmental groups like WWF, the Nature Conservancy, Conservation International, think tanks like World Resources Institute, the Harvard School of Public Health is very involved in providing us scientific support. And then we also have some important public health and health rights groups and grassroots groups also in the coalition, like Right to Health Action here in the United States and Marked by COVID. And these are organizations that bring thousands and thousands of people together to campaign for health rights. Marked by COVID is a group of thousands of survivors of COVID, and many of them are people who have lost loved ones to COVID. And we're united by a couple of major things. One is that probably like nearly everybody listening to this, we desperately do not want this to happen again. This really has had an extraordinary toll. Estimates of excess deaths due to this pandemic suggest about 20 million people have actually died around the world from COVID-19. That's an awful, awful loss and tragedy for, for, for many, many millions of families. The impact on the economy, the impact on many other people's lives who've been ruined, especially in poorer parts of the world, right? It's had a disproportionate impact on people of color, less privileged people, people in the global south, About 95% of people in least developed countries still haven't even had one shot of a vaccine. Whereas, you know, I've been fortunate to have three already and could walk five minutes from here and probably pick half a dozen places to get another one today if I wanted it. So it's had a profound impact on the world. And I think we, just as people, we, we desperately want to stop this happening again. But as people who work on the natural environment, on biodiversity, on tropical forests, like me, I'm a tropical forest ecologist, there was also an immediate interest and sense in where this came from and starting to learn more about that, recognizing that all pandemics of the last century started with the spillover of viruses from wildlife into people. Uh, some of it via other species, but all of it basically coming from different species of bats and rodents and so on, and a lot of that in the tropics. And it's like, well, if that's the case, could we actually stop that or reduce the risk of that happening? It's a question of ecology. It's a question of how people interact with the nature around them. So we started looking more and more at the science. Obviously, some people were already very expert on this. We consulted with them. Some of them came into our coalition. And we came together and said, looked at that. We looked at the economics of it. There was some very good published work on that. And we set ourselves a goal of greatly reducing the risk of future pandemics by reducing spillover of viruses. And we estimate that about $10 billion a year is all it would take to implement the interventions that we're proposing, which are related to tropical forest conservation, the wildlife trade, and biosecurity in animal agriculture, which we could talk more about livestock and and how those happen to pick up viruses and pass them on to people. Why don't you give us a bit more information on what spillover is exactly? When you talked about the dangers of spillover, Mm. what do you mean exactly by that and how does it happen? There are different estimates of how many viruses are out there circulating in other species, hundreds of thousands or maybe millions. And species that are 
let's say, relatively close to us, you know, other mammals, other vertebrates that are highly diverse, the bats, the birds, the rodents, right? Very large numbers of those species, therefore have large numbers of viruses. And occasionally one of those viruses makes the leap into humans, right? So HIV AIDS, for example, which is one of the worst pandemics of the last 100 years, it's killed, I think, about 30, 40 million people so far. That probably originated in chimpanzees in southwestern Cameroon in the 1920s. There's some extraordinary scientific work that's uncovered this story. So probably hunters or a hunter captured, butchered a chimpanzee. You can imagine the blood on his hands or whatever gets into his bloodstream. And it slowly started spreading. The HIV AIDS virus slowly started spreading through human populations in Central Africa. So the spillover is when that virus jumped over from the chimpanzee into a human by chance and was able to reproduce in the human cells and start spreading. We're still not quite sure what the origins of COVID-19 are, of course, and there's been a lot of conspiracy theories around that, which we have to try to ignore. But the latest evidence has found very similar viruses with very similar spike proteins, which are the key characteristic of the SARS-CoV-2 virus that allow it to be so infectious with humans. They found very similar spike proteins and viruses from bats collected in northern Laos, which is near to the border with Yunnan in China. Not that hard to imagine it's spreading from those bats to people and then somehow spreading in China and popping up in Wuhan. How did it get from the bats to the people? People go into bat caves to collect the bat poop or guano, as we might call it, for farming. It's very rich in phosphates and so on. They get covered in bat poop and bat pee. It doesn't take much for them to be exposed. And then there's, of course, the more well-known consumption of bats in restaurants and so on in many parts of Asia and other parts of the world. So that would also bring people into contact with them, them live. You've got viruses spilling over from rodents into humans, right? Think about mice and rodents coming into people's houses and so on. People coming into contact with the feces, with the urine, the dead animals and so on. All of those are opportunities potentially for spillover. What then are the links between deforestation and pandemics? Yeah, well, that's something that we've looked at very closely. The Harvard School of Public Health, together with a number of very prominent scientists around the world, did look at this carefully for us. I think that the thing that you need to imagine is, so tropical forests, right, full of wildlife in their natural state and wildlife that's full of viruses. You've got a few people living in those areas, think about indigenous communities and so on, relatively low population density going about their lives, pretty low risk that viruses are going to be spilling over. They may be, they may not, but it's not happening very often. And then deforestation comes along. So think about a road going in, a mine being built, uh, a palm oil plantation being developed or something like that. Suddenly you've got much larger numbers of people moving into those areas and then establishing small settlements which grow into towns and suddenly you've got hundreds of thousands of people basically living in the forest frontier. Uh, there would be significant consumption of wildlife often in these settlements and just close proximity with the birds, the bats, the rodents and so on. 
And so the chances of spillover are much, much higher. So wherever you've got significant deforestation going on, especially sort of that those earlier stages of it, as forest areas are being opened up and communities established and so on, then we believe you've got very high risk of spillover. And so preventing that and managing that more carefully would reduce the risk of that happening. So essentially, there's a kind of a sweet spot here where the, you know, dealing with deforestation and really tackling the risks and drivers of deforestation at the same time will help to prevent future pandemics then. Why do you think the relationship between climate action and pandemic prevention was not more to the fore in Glasgow last week? That is a really interesting question. We did a major event on Tuesday with several ministers and indigenous leaders, which was very well attended. As far as I could tell, that was the only event out of probably literally thousands that took place during the COP that really focused on this intersection between pandemic prevention and climate change. And our basic message was two crises, one solution. If you protect forests, you're protecting very important carbon sinks, you're protecting biodiversity, and you're reducing the risk of spillover. So a dollar spent on that is a dollar pretty well spent in our book. And that message, it's a simple message. We find it easy to explain this to policymakers. But yeah, we've got a lot of people still to talk to and a lot of work to do for this to really become mainstream. But we are making progress. The World Health Organization was part of our meeting They supported our message. We're starting to see others starting to talk about this as well. So, yeah, we're building awareness and understanding of this. And I think we will have a major impact over the coming 6, 12, 18 months. Do you think there's a sense that people still do see things a little bit black and white? So deforestation is a carbon problem and that's where it sits. They don't think of it in terms of a public health problem. That's exactly what we have learned. And to me, that's been somewhat shocking I enjoy the intersection between these issues. I always have, but most people don't seem to. So you've got entire organizations, yeah, which are focused, of course, on one particular thing, forests, climate change, public health, economic development, human rights. And what we're doing is at the intersection of all of these things. So it's hard for those organizations often to engage in what we're doing, But slowly and surely, we are making progress on that. The world and its institutions are inherently siloed. We divide ourselves up into different sectors and different specializations. Science is is notorious for this. Scientists becoming more and more specialized as their careers advance and losing sight of the bigger picture and the interconnections, whereas the greatest advances are often made by scientists who do see that bigger picture. That's where we are working And yes, we've got some deep systemic challenges that we need to overcome if the world is to address this. But it's a similar story, of course, with climate change as well, right? Current institutions and financing and so on are not designed to address this problem. We've got trillions in subsidies for fossil fuels and public outrage when there are subsidies for electric vehicles and wind power in some places. So some very fundamental things that need to be addressed over the next decade or so if we're going to address any of these issues. To address these issues then, where would you like to see efforts focused that will enable both pandemic prevention and impact at climate change? Well, we would like to see governments recognising that a dollar spent at the intersection of these issues will have multiple impacts and will help to address many different crises at the same time. We're calling for about $10 billion a year 
through existing mechanisms or new institutions, new funds, whatever is needed to address deforestation, to address the wildlife trade, to make livestock agriculture safer for human health and hopefully less unpleasant for the animals involved as well. That's about what we think it would cost together with significant domestic expenditures by governments like China's, for example, who already have taken major steps to address some of the wildlife trade and wildlife markets issues. So that's what we're calling for. We're engaging very senior policymakers in the G7, the G20 governments, those that have the power and the capacity to make these resources available and to think with us about how to spend them wisely. So that's what we're pushing for. We're making progress. We've seen some good developments in the US Congress with some important pieces of legislation which are now moving through there with bipartisan support that could appropriate billions of dollars to help not only vaccinate the world and address basic healthcare issues, but also provide significant resourcing and capacity to prevent spillover at the source, prevent pandemics before they start. As your work progresses, what will success look like? What are the kind of milestones you're aiming for along the route to alleviating the risk of pandemics? Ultimately, of course, it's no more pandemics. It's going to be hard for us to prove that our efforts have done that if we don't see more pandemics. But we are actually working with a team of scientists to design some monitoring efforts and research on the ground that would start to measure sort of in near real time the reduced risk of spillover, reduced occurrence of spillover on the ground in communities that live in and around forests. But ultimately, we want to, we can track the resources that are made available to address spillover risk. We can monitor changes in policy and partnerships between major institutions, you know, so getting, seeing the World Health Organization working effectively with the UN Environment Program, with the UN Food and Agriculture Program, seeing here in the United States, you know, the Department of Health and Human Services and the Centers for Disease Control embracing efforts by USAID and others that are working on forest conservation and seeing that also as part of a public health effort. Seeing senior leaders in countries across the world talking about the importance of protecting forests and wildlife as being fundamental for human health as well. There's a lot to do, isn't there? The long way to go. But it's interesting to see how these different bodies can work together. I mean, do you think there's a risk of sometimes a bit of a bit of turf guarding? Everyone's out to protect their bit of the problem rather than seeing how they can work together for the common good. We see direct evidence of that almost on a daily basis. I'm not going to share specific examples and call people out for that right now. Oh, but, go on. Uh, but we, we do see that and we are trying to work to deal with that, get people into conversations exactly as you said, to recognize that there is so much more at stake here than simply protecting an institution's core budget. And I think a very important part of this is that we're also saying the traditional and ongoing efforts in public health also need substantially more resources. We're saying invest more in vaccines, invest more in the capacity of public health agencies, especially in poorer countries. That's very important. But also start to look more strategically at how you can stop spillover at the source and take a comprehensive approach on all of the above approach to addressing this challenge. Even if that adds up to several tens of billions of dollars a year, 
That's tiny compared with the cost of this pandemic. The IMF estimates that this pandemic has cost the world somewhere between 20 and 30 trillion dollars. We've seen the US and Europe directly spend about 10 trillion dollars just to keep their economies afloat. So we're calling for, you know, less than 1% of that per year would we believe significantly reduce the risk of this happening again. That's a very good investment. It certainly is. Well, it'd be interesting to see how your work develops over the coming years. But for now, Nigel Sizer, Executive Director of the Coalition to Prevent Pandemics at Source. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Ian. Very nice to talk with you. As ever, the Innovation Forum website is the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews and for discounted tickets for the Landscapes and Commodities Conference from the 30th of November. And there's a review of some of the events from COP26. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh. Until next week, goodbye.